Hello, and on this week's We've Seen That podcast, we're discussing the 1990 horror movie Scream. I'm Jim. I'm Scott. And I'm Anthony. We are back. We made it to episode two. Uh, we're glad to have you back for another episode. Uh, if you didn't hear in the intro, um, there's a third member of the team. He's like family to me. Uh, he's a longtime listener of the podcast, and he is... Anthony, nice to meet you guys. Thanks for bringing me aboard. Can't wait to just kick back and talk movies with you boys. Bring something different to our listeners. Hopefully just a place where they can get reviews from normal dudes. Um Kind of just bringing that chill vibe. Hopefully uh, something that can bring some enjoyment to the people out there and keep this going for quite a while. Um, I know you guys like to do what you're watching now. So I will go ahead and jump into what I'm watching. This kind of goes back to what Scott was talking about last week since he was looking for some more Rami Malik in his life. Yes. Um, yeah. Freddie Mercury, actually. <laughs> there you go. Um so I just recently started watching Mr. Robot, okay. a show that ran from 2015 to 2019 on USA. USA. Actually. Yeah. From Monday yeah. It is done. Yeah. The finale ended obviously a couple like last year, late last year, 2019. Great show. I'm on like third or fourth episode of season two. So, but season one was full of tons of twists. Um, Rami Malek plays a cybersecurity engineer named Elliot Alderson. But he's, if I had to explain him, he's pretty mentally unstable. I don't want to give too much away. Um, okay. If you guys have ever seen Dexter, yes. where he's like a serial killer, but like a good guy, I'd say he's like the hacker of the he's hacker like a, version like a Dexter, Dexter of hackers. Okay. You know, he, he kind of like hacks people to try to make other people's lives better sort of thing. But um, Anyway, it also stars Christian Slater as Mr. Robot, who he meets in the first season. And he kind of brings Elliot along on this journey of this kind of giant project that they have going on. Like I said, I don't want to give too much away. It's a great show. But yeah, I highly recommend um, for you, Scott, if you're looking for something else to watch with some Rami Malek, that'd yep. be a good one. I know. I feel like I gave myself away last week when I said he's, he's basically Freddie Mercury to me. So, you know, I feel like I got to at least take you up on that and put that in the queue. Where are you Absolutely. watching that one right now? Um, first three seasons for sure, I think, are on Amazon Prime. That's where I'm watching it right now. So you do have to have a membership for that, unfortunately. But uh, other than that, I think the fourth episode you, or fourth season you can find the last one on Hulu. That's what I plan on doing. But yeah, first three seasons, Amazon Prime is where you can find that one. Love it. Rolling into what I'm watching this week, uh, I... Me and my fiance, I need a little course correction. Uh, last week, I said my girlfriend, and uh, she she listened to the first 10 minutes of the pod and wanted me to let you know we, we are engaged. It's my fiance. Um, Scott's been sleeping on the couch for a week after that scroll. Yeah, no, uh, it, it's been really nice having the, a blanket that's about four feet on the on the couch. But um, I've been watching away on Netflix. Um, it's Hilary Swank. Uh is the lead character of the show. And it's all about them getting to Mars. She leads a team to Mars. Honestly, that's pretty much the plot. Like uh, me saying that should be enough for you space people to want to watch the show. Uh, but when I say that there really isn't much of a plot other than them going to Mars, that's pretty accurate. So 
I did enjoy it, but I also don't think it's like anything spectacular. You know, it's, it's not like life-changing show or anything like that, but it's got some really good acting in it from some new actors and actresses in it. So I would say if, if you, if you need to fill like a solid weekend of TV, that's not too bad. Then I spent the day watching Final Destination 5 about a week ago. <laughs> and, uh, when I tell you these movies, it's like they, they peaked at number three, the first and second were good. The fourth one went way off the rails, but the fifth one goes even fucking further. Like the kills in this movie are absolutely outrageous. Starting with the first scene is about a bridge falling down. And that's like the vision that the guy sees in this final destination movie. But the kills are just outrageous. Like you've got a couple where the character's like, Hey Alex. And then he turns around. He's like, what? And then there's just a board through the chest. Like it's that kind of, that kind of <laughs> kills. But then there's one kill in it in particular that, I think was actually really well done and they spent most of their money in that it's a laser eye surgery kill. I'm always a person who's like, don't put anything close to my eye. Like that freaks me out. So the, even the thought of laser eye surgery, I'm like, hell no, but this shows you what would happen if it goes wrong. And it's just a, it's a great scene, but that ends with her falling out a window and then dying from falling out of the window, not the actual laser. So it's just a little disappointed there. But, I wear um, contacts myself, and that movie is stopping me from getting uh, laser eye surgery. I was Won't just going to say it. that. Don't want anyone carving around in my head. If, if we have any listeners who are thinking about laser eye surgery, you probably shouldn't watch that movie before you get it, because it will freak you out. Same with like tanning beds in the third one. Never have wanted to be, be in a tanning bed ever since those movies. So those are, the, those are the two things that I saw this last week. And what would you rate so, Final Destination 5? Oh my god. Um... I enjoyed it, but it's like a, a two out of 10. It's really bad. All right. What are you watching? Yeah. I watched this week invisible man. So my girlfriend and I have uh, a standing movie date every Monday. We call it movie Monday. Uh, we switch off each week and one person gets to pick a movie. The other person cannot veto it. It has to be a movie that we have not seen before either of us and has to be on a streaming service. We already have. So each week we switch off, and this week was uh, my girlfriend's week, and she chose The Invisible Man, uh, the 2020 movie from Blumhouse, uh, notoriously went to video on demand instead of going to theaters as it was the beginning of a coronavirus season. Uh, and what can I say? This movie was great. I give it an 8 out of 10. They did a super great job of making you worry about an invisible person being in a room, which sounds more difficult than it actually is. There were many shots where you're looking in on Elizabeth Moss, our uh, main character, Cecilia, and then the camera will just pan over to an empty hallway or a corner of an empty room, it, implying the entire time that somebody's there. But clearly they didn't even bother putting someone in a green screen suit and erasing him out because they just don't reveal him in that scene but it makes you feel stressed the entire movie. I'm worried about when the next attack is going to be. Like I said, eight out of 10 made me stress the entire time. I thought it was a major success. When I originally saw the trailers for that, I couldn't like my in initial thought was just how stupid it looked. And, and like I, from what I've seen with reviews, like it's, it's gotten incredible reviews. So Maybe I'm misjudging that one, but the scene that I saw in the trailer was like she was crawling upstairs and she poured the attic and then she poured paint on him or something like that. And so or a blanket. I don't know. You could see the outline of the man. So, yeah, it was paint in that scene. And 
I'll tell you, it hits different when you're watching okay. it. Like, cause I saw okay. it in the trailer and I thought that I, I honestly thought it would be later in the movie that they finally revealed that he was legitimately there. But my gosh, when, when she threw the paint on him, I physically jumped. Okay. I'll check that out. Uh, next thing I've been doing, it's not quite film or movies, but I wanted to steal the show for just half a second and talk video games. I've been diving back into Skyrim. It's been out for like 10 years now. So I'm playing on the Xbox one and just enjoying playing as a, a high elf wizard and running around, setting everything on fire and fighting down dragons with, uh, all of my various magic. It's been great. This has been your video game update. <laughs> I did not see this. I, when you put this on what you're watching was, I was like, oh, they made it into a show. No, Jim's just talking about a game that he hasn't gotten around to for the last eight years of his life. I, I bought this game twice, actually. I had it for the 360 <laughs> and like bounced off of it, never really got into it. And then I bought it for my girlfriend for the Xbox One, and she bounced off of it, never got into it. But now I finally sat down, and I'm maybe 30, 35 hours into my playthrough of what I'm expecting to be 100 to 200 hours. And I am so hooked this time. It is an amazing game. Um, I'm curious, did you see that Microsoft bought uh, Bethesda? I did. And my main worry is we we have Xbox right now. We're talking about going to PlayStation 5 Mm -hmm. um, because they have better exclusive games. But I, yeah, what are they going to do about Elder Scrolls 6? Because now that I'm in on Skyrim, I don't want to miss out on the next game. Right. And I think that's just a big move that, you know, Microsoft was not stupid. They know they're probably getting their ass kicked in, in exclusives. So I'm just curious as to if they will actually take it that far and make those Elder Scroll games, you know, exclusive. That would be a huge move that could change a lot of things. That'd be a going big, forward. big win for them. And Phil yeah. Spencer has actually come out and he either tweeted or did an interview after the acquisition. And he said that uh, new projects from Bethesda, they will analyze on a case by case basis to see whether they're going to make them exclusive or not. So right. wow. my worry is wow. because Elder Scrolls six is probably what four to five years away that I may need to buy the half step xbox or like the the series s in order to play it because they'll make it exclusive because they know that's right. a huge earner yeah you you, yep. you guys think there's another podcast out there that can go off track like that it, it's impossible you know there, there's <laughs> nothing like us i'm not gonna apologize i love talking video games hell no <laughs> <laughs> all right guys our next segment is hype horn news in the movie and tv industry um First thing we're going to talk about is the 2020 Emmys, which just happened last week. Jim, what do you have for us? Well, we had some big wins, or I I guess I shouldn't say big because they weren't very surprising. From uh, Schitt's Creek, they swept every single comedy category. I don't think anyone was surprised. It was their final season, uh, all available on Netflix if you'd like to watch it. I haven't seen it yet, but like I said, they swept every single comedy category. So felt we need to mention it. Bigger wins, or in my opinion, bigger wins were for Watchmen in the limited series category. Uh, Watchmen was a follow-up to the DC movie Watchmen of the same uh, same title by Zack Snyder. Directed and written, I believe, for the most part by Damon Lindelof and aired on HBO uh, this past season. I think this show, if we're going to give ratings to shows, was 10 out of 10. It trips Ooh. my DC Comics trigger. It's got intrigue and a plot by some weird, like, time-traveling or otherworldly characters. Reigns of squids down on random people. It was great. I loved it. Yeah, talk about a show that, after the first episode, probably took a complete 180 almost. Um, 
reading reviews and right when I first saw it, I think after that first episode, a lot of people were like, what the fuck is going on here? Because they, I think from at least me, everyone thought it was almost like like a complete redoing of the Watchmen comic itself. But it was clear after the first episode that it was like almost a sequel or taking place after the initial events. Um, but just honestly just gets better after each episode. What actually happened and I'll call out spoilers here for both the movie and probably the first say episode of the show. Uh, Zack Snyder took a couple of liberties with, uh, with the movie itself in the movie, Dr. Manhattan is framed uh, by Ozymandias. Ozymandias makes it look like Dr. Manhattan has blown up a few cities around the world to unite the entire world in hating uh, Dr. Manhattan so that they would avert the Cold War or like actual aggression happening in the Cuban Missile Crisis. So like I said, Dr. Manhattan framed for those explosions. In the comic book, actually, Ozymandias instead drops a a squid from outer space that he has bioengineered in a lab. He drops it on New York city. So instead of killing like hundreds of millions of people, like what happened in the movie, Ozymandias unifying aggression that would unify the world was instead only killed a few million people in New York. And this is a direct follow-up to that. Hence the reigns of squid that you see throughout the movie. So apologies yeah. on my part for uh, that, uh, lacking that distinction at first but i you know, think that this worked much better you know you don't have to apologize jim it's okay we understand and moving on is our next piece of of hype is mandalorian and this is a very contentious a contentious show for this podcast jim is a self-proclaimed well i don't know if it's self-proclaimed but he's definitely a fan of star wars yet uh, it's certified by the public certified by the star public, wars that he is a star wars fan and he has yet to finish the mandalorian season one i couldn't get into it just i watched the first two episodes i believe and it got a big old i don't care for me it did not have the galaxy bending consequences of the actual movies i understand where people wanted this thing that is within star wars but not about the skywalkers which mm -hmm. i think i'm on board with that idea i don't need it to be about the skywalkers or about uh the kenobis or the Pal palpatines and so on but I wanted the story to actually matter throughout the universe. And my initial reaction to Mandalorian was that this did not matter overall. And see, and that's exactly why I love it so much is because it's, it gives you a more diverse taste of the star Wars world, but it also doesn't really, it, it introduces new characters, but we're not running into old characters. Now I know I've heard that there's a couple of characters that might come in this season from the clone wars, but I, yet we have yet to have like a major oh my gosh that guy's from star wars moment uh we do have baby yoda which jim i know not a, not a big fan of yeah it, it's not baby yoda it is not confirmed to be related to yoda at all we don't this know is... what race yoda is or what species that is all that we know about the child you're the guy mm -hmm. who somehow hates puppies like this, this is the cutest little thing. I mean, you see the new trailer. There's a scene where he covers his shield before an explosion. Just adorable. I mean, Let's it's face just, it. They made Baby Yoda to sell toys. It might Come be on, a cash cow. Yeah. It might be a cash cow. I didn't. I did not want it to go there because that's what I think it has turned into. I I like the show. I did like the show. It was. Cause I had never heard, I never read the books or anything. A lot of people told me about the Mandalorians and stuff. So I thought that was all really interesting. And I, I love Pedro Pascal. Um, 
I think he's a great actor. Yeah. So you never really get to see his face anyway. And actually, it's not even him in the suit doing the stunts. So it's just his voice. But um, I still think he's great. But yeah, I think the Baby Yoda thing's a little overhyped. I think it was kind of like a cash grab in some way. But what is it nowadays? I don't know. Well, and you know that Star Wars is going to sell toys. Like, The Mandalorian itself is prime action figure material. Like, mm-hmm. for real. There's going to be fanboys like me hanging it on their wall, keeping it in the box, refusing to play with it. You know, I mean... It's just the way Star Wars is going to be, but it felt like Mandalorians were in the universe of Star Wars already, whereas Yoda, uh, Baby Yoda, because that's what everyone calls him, the child, I'm even slipping myself here, um, was written in specifically, it feels like, to be a toy. Yeah, well, which hopefully season two clears up some more. Maybe there's more, obviously more to it than than we know. So, you know, but I agree with a lot of things you're saying, for sure. It's It's kind of, you know everyone grasping i think baby yoda was like a cultural name that it just got after the show came out and it was never actually supposed to be the name of the kid but right we'll see either way october 30th we will have a second season of mandalorian and we all know jim won't be watching on disney plus for those who uh would like to watch this if if i read about it i'm not one to generally avoid spoilers super much for movies uh, if if I get sold by reading something, there's no reason why I would not go back and watch this. I'm not that much of a stick in the mud that I'm not going to go back for it if people end up telling me that it's something I would be interested in. I feel like I've told you that a hundred times. I'm not going to disagree with you, but I'm I'm still going to be a stick in the mud till we get to season two. All right. All right. And then uh, one other movie we got to talk about. And um, I, I didn't know about this until we started researching for this episode and I typed in trailers coming out soon. I saw Liam Neeson and I said, why the hell not? And we have The Honest Thief coming out, uh, which is actually about Liam Neeson as a bank robber. But then he calls the police to turn himself in. And why does he do that? Because of a girl. Because of a girl. And, you know, would a, would meeting a girl really want to make you give up $9.6 million? I think that's the real question we got to start out with here. But, you know, if Liam Neeson falls in love, it must be the real thing. Well, Scott, would you give up Cassie? Let's not start that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. I think the correct answer is you buy her a $9.6 million. Uh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Going further in that movie, we've got a, he, he does eventually turn himself in and the cops seem to be like, OK, you know, we're going to get a lot of money from this guy. But then when he's about to get picked up for this, you know, he's about to get arrested. Uh, these two cops are like, well, we could just kill him and get nine million dollars, you know, as cops do. And uh, eventually we we just have a scenario where Liam Neeson is fighting back and he's like, hey, I'm innocent. I'm trying to turn myself in. But I think I'm just sold on the fact that. One, Liam Neeson doesn't seem to be holding back too much on the Irish accent in this trailer, which is oh, not a at bit all. different. And I love that he's steering into that. And he's just like, you know, I can just be myself and be badass. Like, that's just what I do. Yeah, I like it. Because like I said earlier to you, Scott, I think when we were offline, he, I'm pretty sure I read an article like three or four years ago where <laughs> Liam Neeson was done doing action, just straight action movies because he didn't want to be like thrown into that typecast. But Let's face it. If he's in anything like this, sign me up. You know, I'm not saying I'll go see it in theaters, but I might. Yeah, hey, the I man mean, signs up for a paycheck. It'd be an afternoon flick for some popcorn and stuff. I, <sighs> I'll eat it up. I'll eat it up. I love Liam Neeson. I love action movies. I mean, so, 
you know what you're getting in this movie. You know the first half's going to be like some decent, uh, probably not even decent dialogue, but just trying to set the story. And you know the last half of the movie is just going to be absolute chaos. So <laughs> you know, you really know what you're getting with Liam Neeson. So you yeah, know, quick cuts of him trying to do action at his age. Absolutely, and and the occasional tagline that's going to come with this movie. Don't know what it is, but he always seems to have one in each movie that he has. So. Well, I have one more movie, if you guys don't mind, that I'm kind of hyped for. Um, No release date yet. Just started filming about a month ago. Supposed to start at the beginning of the year, but obviously COVID complications kind of pushed everything back. Going off of The Lighthouse last week, or last week you guys were talking about Robert Eggers, director, coming out with a new movie called The Northmen. All we know about it is it's a Viking revenge saga set in the turn of the 10th century. So if there's anything I know about Robert Eggers so far as he's done The Witch and The Lighthouse, both pretty good period pieces, um, great dialogue. You guys touched on all that last week in The Lighthouse. An unbelievable cast lined up so far. Um, Alexander Skarsgård, you might know. He was in the new Tarzan. He's been in a bunch of other mm-hmm. stuff. You'd probably recognize him. Um, Willem Dafoe, Anya Taylor-Joy, who was in Split and Glass, um, and in The Witch, his first movie, Nicole Kidman and Ethan Hawke just to name a few. One bummer, um, Bill Skarsgård was supposed to be in the movie, the guy that was Pennywise. So he was going to star in the movie with his brother, but had to quit um, due to scheduling conflicts with other movies because of the whole COVID thing got pushed back. So bummer there, but definitely something I'm looking forward to. That's right up my alley, some sort of Viking revenge sword fighting stuff we don't really have that many viking based movies you know i feel like i can't think of any off the top of my head i'm sure you guys can but i i love i loved that era because i feel like you can recreate some pretty awesome movies with it so it'd be pretty interesting to see what they do with it i'm really excited about this you guys had me sold at anya taylor joy i think she is an underrated gem i loved her in thoroughbreds and in Split, I haven't seen Glass yet, but I am. I, I think she's a really great young actress, and I'm excited to see what she does in this. This is the moment you all wait for on these podcasts. We're going to get to the movie review, and we are doing the 1996 movie Wes Craven special Scream. And before we start, guys, we got a famous line in this movie. The killer always seems to ask his victims, what's your favorite scary movie? So this segment, we're going to call it What's your favorite scary movie? I can't get through it. I can't get through it. Sorry. Um, We're going to call it What's Your Favorite Scary Movie. I tried to do it in the killer's voice there, and I rehearsed that all day, and it still didn't come out. Uh, But I just want to know what each of your guys' favorite scary movie is. We're approaching October here, and it's just that time of the year. Weather's getting colder. It's just that time to make a big old plate of like mac and cheese and watch a scary movie. So, Anthony, let's start with you. What's your favorite scary movie? All right, Scott, we'll try not to kill you too bad for that shitty ghost. I, you know, ghost I I had it. <laughs> not too bad. Um, no, my favorite scary movie just came out in the last couple of years. You guys touched on it last week. It seems to be a theme with me. I must listen to the podcast. Huge fan, like I said. Um, no, uh, Hereditary by Ari Aster. Yeah, you talked about it a little bit last week, Scott. To me, just, just an absolute slow burn of just sheer hell um Mm -hmm. i don't know how to explain it other than i just feel like 
this odd sense of terror the whole time I'm watching it. It's not that there's jump scares every two seconds, but it's just this subtle, just heaviness is all I can explain it. Just kind of like beating down on you the whole time you're watching it. Just there's plenty of scenes that'll just freak you the hell out. Um, and it's just, it's just one of those movies that just is going to stick with me forever. Um, and definitely, definitely way up there in, in my top movies and by far my favorite horror movie. I know I had watched this one and I actually chose to watch it alone. And uh, I regret that decision. You know, I was I was legitimately on the edge of my seat the whole time with that pounding in the movie. It's like your heartbeat the entire time. It really builds the stress throughout the movie. And I think that that's that slow burn that they're kind of going for. And it's just so much more psychological than it is like actually what's scary on TV at times, but also they match it with scenes where you're just like, what the fuck is going on? So you've just got a little mix of everything with that one. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I highly recommend if anybody's looking to just feel completely uncomfortable for an hour and 45 minutes, if that's what you're into. <laughs> yeah. I need to add that one to my list. Cause I haven't seen it, but, uh, seen midsummer also by Ari Aster mm -hmm. and I'm sold ready to try out hereditary next time I get a chance. All right, Jim, let's go to you. What's your favorite scary movie? My favorite scary movie is the original saw from 2004. Mm -hmm. uh, just love the idea of constantly uh, the killer asking the, the victims, what are you willing to do to survive? What are you willing to do to make it out of this? Um, he picks people of questionable moral standing, which I think is just a sweet turn from the serial killers who seem to go after people who are innocent. Big twist ending. I won't say more than that for people who haven't seen it, but I guess it's from 2004. So I, I love this movie. It's one that I watched maybe when I was a little bit too young for it still. And it freaked me out for quite some time. My dad has some funny stories about me. But yeah, this movie stuck with me for a long time. It's my favorite horror movie. It was, I love Saw. I love the original. I love the second one. And the third one's not even that bad. But you notice how fast I'm counting there because we got up to about eight movies with Saw. And there's a remake in the works uh, with Chris Rock in it. So I don't know if that one's ever coming out. It was supposed to be coming out come quarantine. But um, something I want to say about these movies is, like you said, the first one's amazing. Twist is incredible. But as the movies go on, God, it just seems like Jigsaw was like getting people of questionable morals. But then it's like you wrote a blank check. Now you have to play a game. Like it gets out of control with some of the traps they get put in. They can't even get out. They get killed. Like it's fourth, completely off the rails. It's I, I'm, I love that series. Like it's it's one of my favorite horror series. But four through seven through jigsaw which anthony and i saw together in theaters and that was something else Not uh, great. <laughs> but you know it's just these movies really went off the rails but people kept watching them so they kept making money i think it's definitely one of the ones where you watch the first few movies in that series for a different reason than you watch the last few. Absolutely. The first ones, because they seem to be legitimately good horror. The last ones, because at this point you're invested. You have no yeah. idea what's going on with the plot because they got so off the rails. And you just need to know what crazy thing these guys are going to think of next. Like, <laughs> you, you got to be completely sadistic in order to think of some of the traps that they use. In Absolutely. These it's just, Absolutely. just nuts. Yeah, it turned into a yearly tradition for us. I mean, after those first two, I think... 
you know, or maybe even three, they started coming out every year around Halloween. So that used to be the thing we'd do. We'd go to the new Saw movie every year. And whether it was good or not, you know, it didn't really matter to us. But I agree that first one definitely was pretty groundbreaking. And yeah, an absolute insane twist. But yeah, very good movie. Something something needs to be said about that too, because you say it it was our tradition. But it was also only our tradition if you could get your parents to sign you in. Because at the time, wow. not all of us were 17, so we all couldn't get in. And you'd have to like coordinate, well, this person's dad or mom's going to sign for me to get into the theater. So yeah. that's a nice little uh, fun fact about what we had to go through just to watch. Probably about the time if Robert or Evan was going to break CDL too to drive us there. Yeah. <laughs> watching saw yearly became essentially breaking the law for us is what it came down to (laughs) your guys's theater would let your parents sign for you our local theater they had to come see the movie with you they had to buy a ticket and stay i'm not exactly sure what the rule was but i i had heard that before um i like i know a couple times i did get signed in to see one or like my mom called beforehand to pick up the tickets or something like that uh but yeah it 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 really didn't seem to be that big of a deal to our theater. I I wish I lived there. It sounds <laughs> awesome. I mean, it probably corrupted me greatly as a child. Like some of the <laughs> movies that I saw, you know, the first horror movie I saw was like when I was eight years old. So I'm sure that didn't help my growth. Yeah. Now we know why you ended up the way you did. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But anyways, Scott, you're the last one here. What is your favorite horror movie? And what a segue to go into uh, this movie, because Scream actually is my favorite horror movie. And there's many reasons behind why it's my favorite. But my main reason behind it is because I think it changed the horror game forever. I think the horror game went from a slasher type, uh, you know, paranormal type to some movies being okay with adding a little comedy into it. And and Scream kind of pushed the boundaries of like breaking the fourth wall in the movie of like calling out what a horror movie does. So I just I just love the moments in the movie where they're like, no, you broke the horror movie rules. You know, like obviously a big one in this movie that we're going to get to is like, you can't have sex. If you have sex, you die. And it's just funny that Scream pointed that out, made like rules as to why you can't do certain things and why you get killed. And as horror movies have gone on, I think they've broken those rules and that's what's made horror better is because like they set a base for what you can't do. So I don't know. I just, I love scream. I love it. As watching it for the first time, I definitely like the aspect of satire. You know, I thought that was one of the biggest selling points to me. I thought it was really tongue in cheek, but with that, we'll get to the uh, plot synopsis for this one real short. A year after the murder of her mother, a teenage girl is terrorized by a new killer who targets the girl and her friends by using horror films as part of a deadly game. As mentioned up top, it was directed by Wes Craven, written by Kevin Williamson, and stars Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, and David Arquette. All right, so opening scene, and as with any Scream movie, you've got a phone that rings. And who do we have picking up the phone but Drew Barrymore is is the lead opener of, of this movie. And and she gets a phone call from someone she doesn't recognize. And essentially the guy's like, oh, hello. And right off the bat, she's just totally playing into it. You know, do you notice that she's just kind of like, I'm going to go with this for a little bit. Oh, yeah. She's ready to flirt with this guy. She wants to talk yeah. with him. No concern whatsoever for the fact that she has no idea who this is. And clearly did not check caller ID or didn't have it. 
And one thing I, I looked up before this is a little fun fact. Since this movie, after this movie came out, it was something like three times the amount of caller ID systems were ordered because of it. And, and this movie, when it came out, wasn't supposed to be this huge blockbuster because it came out in December. And everybody's thinking, like, let's watch a happy movie. But Scream comes out in December. And it just absolutely killed at the box office and changed horror forever. Yeah, I mean, truly, truly iconic um, opening sequence. And, you know, Drew Barrymore, a huge star in the 90s. So you're, like I said, I'm not going to give away too much for you, Scott, for your little rundown yeah. here. But, like, you you open up a movie with her. You see her right away. You know, she's looking good, gorgeous back then. And, you know, it's like, where is this going to go from here? And I think what Wes Craven decides to do for the next, you know, hour and 50 minutes is is truly iconic. Um Definitely one of the most influential horror movies, um, you know, in the last 30 years. Um, but yeah, great, great, great opening sequence. For and sure. as, as this phone conversation's going on, um, she she hangs up eventually because she's like, you got the wrong number. You know, it's like telemarket or whatever. The guy calls back and I believe one of his first lines is, what number is this? You know, he, he immediately is like, wait, what number is this? And she's just like still totally playing into it and occasionally i believe he asks her like do, don't you have a boyfriend or something and originally she says no um but you know we're going on and on and he's asking her right away what's your favorite scary movie but before that drew barrymore puts some jiffy pop on the stove and i leaves feel, it unattended well we'll get to that but i feel like jiffy pop made a killing on advertising in this movie because i saw that and i was like i want some I want some fucking Jiffy Jiffy Pop right now. Like that was my first thought. You better run soon or something because my boyfriend's coming. And she says he's big and he plays football and he will kick the shit out of you. So um, I don't know what kind of stereotype we're going for here. Obviously the jock, but the fact that she threw in he plays football just made this scene beautiful to me. Well, it's what's important yeah. to a high school girl is that your boyfriend <laughs> plays football. That's that's the stereotype or the archetype that uh, Wes Craven wrote her into. Yeah, and and uh, and I mean this the boy we do find out is his name is Steve. Um, and originally, the first thing that Drew Barrymore has to do is try to save him. And how does she? How is she going to do that? But the killer makes up a, a game of horror movie questions, and I actually don't believe i have the first question that he wrote down oh i, I believe michael myers right it was uh who's the killer of who's halloween? the killer in halloween right and and drew barrymore is distressed and she's like oh i don't know right away but then she eventually says michael myers and the guy the guy on the other end's like correct and he's really playing into like that game show host which i really like he's kind of messing with her but i also wrote down his second question is such a dick move oh i got it wrong i was sitting there on the bed watching the movie and I completely got it wrong. It was out of left field for me. Anthony, did you get this one right? Well, I would have just said Jason. Right. So the question is in name, the killer in the original Friday, the 13th, which the actual killer in Friday, the 13th is Jason's mom. And I think we can thank scream for that little trivia tidbit. If we ever are in bar trivia someday, cause that could be a question. I feel 
Right. That's one you should just take to heart because I, it is, it, you wouldn't, you feel your, this is what I wrote down to. I did write that same awesome exact quote. quote about the football player. Awesome. <laughs> um, no, but like I wrote, this is like the use of real movies really just like mm. adds to this whole realism that you're feeling, you know, you really feel like you could be almost be in her position at this time, you know, and like if somebody asked you that question, you had to answer it or your freaking significant other was going to die. Well, <laughs> you know, I, you don't know what you'd say, but you know, that's that I think just, it really pounds down like that re- whole realism feel um, just cause he's using actual movies. And like, I don't know, I would have never got that question. Right. Even though I've seen Friday the 13th, I don't know how many times. Yeah. Well, let's face it. You if know, he had used made up movies and made up characters, it removes all of the weight from this scene, right? Because otherwise, when mm-hmm. she spits off name of movie XYZ, killer is John Doe, it, it means absolutely nothing to the audience. It had to be a reference to uh, to actual movies or this scene just doesn't work. And honestly, um, one thing this movie has going for it throughout is they reference an unreal amount of horror movies. I mean... There's there's themes with Halloween in it constantly. There's jokes about Nightmare on Elm Street. There's just Wes Craven stabs everywhere. And I, I forgot to add a little tidbit at the beginning, but she is talking about her favorite scary movies. And I believe he brings up Freddy Krueger. And she says, Nightmare on Elm Street was good, but the rest of them sucked. And I just thought that was a little funny. Like Wes Craven was like, I need to add this one in there. Always poking fun at himself a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, but after she got this question wrong, she answers She answers Jason Voorhees, which we all would have answered. Uh, he says no, and the lights go off in the porch where Steve is trapped in this chair, and the lights come back on. His intestines are just out of him. And But my favorite add to this scene, he was wearing his Letterman jacket. Oh, he's got to be. Otherwise, how do you know that he plays football, dude? Absolutely. I mean, unless he was holding one. I mean, but that seems a little out of place. Right. Um, But just just guts hanging out of him. And, you know, it's a really I mean, it's it's not done greatly, but it 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 gives it sets the tone a little bit that the killer is not just like one stab kind of guy. You know, he's like, I'm going to pretty much graphic. Yeah. You know, it's Craven's MO. He's not afraid to show a little gore, as you guys talked about in, in the Freddy movies. So yeah. it's pretty gruesome, that's for sure. So ev- eventually she gets a third question, and this is to save her life. But her question is, which door am I behind? And to me, that's bullshit. I'm just going to throw that out there. I mean, well, she can't really- get it right. He's no. going to move. Um, and, and here I just wrote down chair launches from garden through window. Um <laughs> And if you think about it, I'm going to put the spoiler out there right away because there spoilers are coming, but you realize here, this is where it's two killers. Like, you know, after this scene, it's two killers because one of them's inside the house. The other's just fucking with her outside. So apparently one of the killers was outside just launching a chair through the window. How a they connection that, that none of them made though, either. Right. And I, I just, I don't know how they coordinated the, the chair toss, but I loved it. And this is where we see the Jiffy Pops on, pretty much on fire. And I just wanted to throw that in there that I bet, yeah, a house has been burned down before with Jiffy Pop. Most definitely, especially if they're getting attacked by a serial yeah. killer. <laughs> and I mean, it's a realistic scenario. So, you know, I, Jiffy Pop probably just made a killing on this. I'm just, again, I'm going to look for, in my local store for a Jiffy Pop here coming soon. But 
then we finally get her running through the house. You know, you know, she's going to, at this point, you kind of feel like she's going to get killed. Like I finally came to that, like, Hey, Drew Barrymore is probably not the main character here, but the way that she gets killed is, is pretty brutal. Um, she's still holding the phone as she's running away from the killer. And they do this little slow motion action shot of, of like them sprinting side by side but then the killer just like slowly stabs her like right in the chest the first time. And so she's down for the count a little bit. But the next scene's like the scariest part to me is she she sees her parents coming and then she tries to like scream to them, but she can't because like her wind- her He punctured her lung or something right. like that, right? So she, she's coming off just like, uh, like can't, her parents can't hear a thing. And uh, this this is where the parents come in to the house they pick up the phone and they can literally hear their daughter being dragged like through the grass and she's been stabbed numerous times at this point but the final scene final kill is her hanging from the tree completely gutted yeah as her parents are walking out the front door just a completely traumatic experience for for these movie character parents right to see their daughter who they thought they were speaking to on the phone, clearly now dead. And I think this is just, I think it's just one of the most iconic opening scenes in a horror movie ever. It might be the most iconic in my opinion. Obviously I love this movie, but just such a well done, like it's got nothing to do really with the entire plot. Like this person who gets killed off really didn't have that much relation to the main characters, but it kind of just sets the tone for the killer. Yeah, definitely. Sets him up as a guy that, you know, will go to all costs to do whatever he wants. Um, Totally brutal, ruthless, but also very clumsy. Yes. Just mixing in this, yes, this absolute psychopath, sheer terror, but at the same time, someone you can kind of mess with and kick around. Like, I, to me, it's just, it's original. I like that. It's, you know, this Drew Barrymore puts up a pretty good yeah. fight. Casey Becker, I think her yes. name is in the yeah. movie, um, kicking him and he's stumbling around and oh, yeah. lots of that grunting. But um, but yeah, no, when she's like being dragged across the yard or she gets like so close to the patio and I'm like yelling at her because like I had seen this movie before, but you know, you can't help when you're watching it again. And you're like, I'm like, throw the phone or something. <laughs> get their attention. Like he's right behind you, you know? But yeah, no, definitely, definitely one of the most iconic um opening scenes for a horror movie probably for sure yeah one of my favorites for sure but as as we're going forward here we're introduced to the main character it is neil Cam neve campbell sorry screwed that one up uh and she plays sydney press sydney prescott and she's our she's essentially our protagonist in the movie and she's in her bedroom here and what do we have but of course a boyfriend climbing up a house because that's just what horror movies do it feels so familiar after we saw uh, Johnny Depp do this multiple times in Nightmare on Elm Street. And I believe when I was reading, was doing some research on this, that's why they filmed it was because originally they kind of thought that, um, I forget who plays Billy, Skeet Ulrich. They thought he kind of looked like Johnny Depp a little bit. So it, it was just a little bit of a similar shot. But here we have the classic, the dad's coming upstairs and going to find the boyfriend. So Billy, played by Skeet Ulrich, hides under the bed, and her dad comes in, and he's saying he's about to go to bed, but I have a note written down here. If he's going to bed, why is he wearing a jean jacket? <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's something more to this guy than he's portraying, but no, yeah, just your typical, like, 
dad barging into the daughter's room, you know, what's going on. She's got the door blocked. You're, you know, the boyfriend hiding under the bed. Um, I just, I just think it's so funny how so many of these movies from this time, like really just, they're all very similar, but at the same time, different in their own ways. You know, this obviously being a horror movie, but like, you know, then you have the dad talking about how he's going to be gone on vacation. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, you, we just witnessed this girl get murdered in the opening scene. And now you're like, well, here we are with this girl and her dad's going on vacation. We're like, well, great. Now we kind of know where this is going to go now, but yeah, no, I definitely feel the same sort of, you know, vibe, you know, nineties boyfriend, girlfriend sort of thing going on. For well, sure. Yeah. It also- feels familiar all at once. You also have the classic line of there's money for pizza on the table. And it's used in every movie, and yet it doesn't happen in real life very often, you know? like Always a 20. Always Always a 20. 20. And these days, that wouldn't even cover the 20s getting you half a pizza. That's right. 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 Um, But as, as the dad eventually leaves, we've got Billy. He's telling her why he came over. And originally, the why he came over is because he was watching The Exorcist and he thought it was romantic. And it, <laughs> yeah. it's just, it's great because, like, you, you know, like they, they're kind of self aware of like the ratings and what they kind of mean. You know, like eventually she says, Would you settle for a PG 13 relationship? And she flashes him. So that's kind of like the, well, this is what you see in a PG 13 movie. Rated R is usually like the full sex scene. And then the NC 17. I've never even seen an NC-17 movie, so I don't even know what that would be. Nobody Uh, even wants to make them. They just don't make money. Well, I feel like plenty of rated R movies could have been NC-17, but they just don't give them that rating. Uh, But this is where we kind of learn that Billy is your typical, you're just not going to have sex with me guy. Like, that's what he's basically saying to Sydney this entire movie. It surprises me, and it doesn't, you know... You know, he typically, you can tell by just the way he looks, he comes off as like, you know, the bad yeah. guy sort of vibe. Um, But just the utter, like, disregard for what happened to her mom. Oh. I mean, I get it. It was like, he keeps saying it was like, a, it's been a year, but a year is not that long. Like, and you don't know things affect people differently. Like, he's just totally, to me, just pushing the gas it's, way too It's much. incredible because... It, like that's what he's worried about. Her mom got freaking brutally murdered. There's a scene coming down the line what he compares it to, and I'm just like, oh my god, that's not even close. But we'll get there. But I mean, Billy is—he's definitely got one thing on the mind. But he's constantly making these these horror comparisons, and to me, there's just yellow flags all over the dude. Yeah, and as someone who hadn't seen this before, did they reference her mom's uh, rape and murder at this point yet? No. Because at first, I mean, it makes it seem so much more, not that it's innocent. No one should be coerced into doing things they don't want to do or pressured into doing things they don't want to do. But it made it seem much more casual than what we end up finding out it is. But we'll cross that when we get there. Right. And eventually we, we, we move past the scene we go to. They're coming to school, which is just crawling with police. We meet a couple of new characters here. One of them is Gail Weathers, played by none other than Courtney Cox. And a little backstory on that. Courtney Cox apparently wanted to take this role because on Friends, she was uh, basically like a goody two-shoes. And she wanted to play the bitch. There's an actual quote out there that she says, I wanted to play a bitch. Which is incredible. Because, yeah, she does it very well. I think. Yeah, it's fantastic. I just want to ask you guys a question. Like, I just thought 
about this watching the movie again. Like, so obviously the kids all show up to school the next day. There's no Twitter or Snapchat or anything like, so obviously like, what do you think this would have been like today? Like you would have known probably two hours after it happened. If somebody, one of your classmates was murdered or something like the vibe would have just been totally different. And I just, I know it has, it's totally out of context, but I just couldn't help but think about like, you know, just the differences in movies that you're, you're anything you watch now made then versus now, like how it would have been shot differently. Maybe had that scene been played out today. I feel like in scream, you've got a lot of really people not taking it seriously. And I think that's because you'd have probably thousands of people's different opinions on the internet of like what actually happened. So if anything, it'd almost be, I don't want, I wouldn't say easier to be a killer if like you were a part of that school, but you'd have so many people just giving up, giving their mind of like what happened. That's an interesting point. I, I like that. Uh, but with, with that, you know, this here, it's much more like the cops are all here. They're still going to school. So everything's just completely normal at this point. And we're also introduced to Rose McGowan who plays Tatum. And she's also the sister of David Arquette who plays Dewey who's a cop that we'll introduce later. Uh, but here we've basically got a bunch of kids getting interviewed and we've got an, a very unexpected, uncredited principal here. Jim, did you catch who that is? Dude, it's the Fonz. It's the Fonz. <laughs> so there's a couple references in this movie of him. Actually, his Fonz jacket was in his closet. I don't know if you guys saw that, but like, and there's a couple times in the movie he catches himself in the mirror and, like, it's supposed to be just like he did when he was the Fonz. Like, hey, you know, like. Yeah, so. he fixes the hair a little bit, does the little bit of, like, wing to himself. It's great. I loved it. And another fun fact about this, he wanted to go uncredited because he wanted the younger actors and actresses to make bigger, you know, make a bigger name for themselves. So he was not credited at all in this movie. Yeah, Henry Winkler, great actor, super funny guy. Um I did not know that about those little yeah. tidbits about some of the nods and that stuff. That's funny. Um, but yeah, no, that's really cool. I've always heard things about like that, how I think he's got a part in the show Barry on HBO with Bill Hader. Yeah. And her so-called like friends, you know, at least um, Stu Stewart um, and everybody around school is just constantly like, like you said, those guys running around with the fake masks and costumes and everything. Like she's just reliving this terror like every single day of her life. And now it's just happened. So it's a year has gone past since her mom died and this is all just happening again. It's like, I don't even know. She holds it together very right, well. Right. And and eventually we do get introduced to the rest of the characters of this little group that they have in this outside scene. Uh, so we're introduced to Matthew Lillard, who plays Stu. And then we're also uh, introduced to Randy, who's played by Jamie Kennedy. Now, Stu is like, I guess you'd describe him as kind of like a stoner, but I don't know if I'm thinking that just because he plays Shaggy and Scooby-Doo. I was going to say, he, the entire time when I was watching the movie, I didn't stop to look it up, but I'm like, who is this Shaggy-ass <laughs> guy? He felt Shaggy in his core. I loved it. And and, and <laughs> Stu, so he kind of plays like a goofball. So they, they have this little dialogue here, which I actually really like. Like they're using puns the whole time of like describing how she got killed. And eventually Stu says, you better live her alone instead of leave her alone. It's liver. And he like makes the point where he's like, you get it liver. And it, it, it was great. It's like flop. You know, it doesn't really hit among the group because again, 
There's Sydney, whose mother just got brutally murdered like a year ago, and he's making a joke about guts and stuff. And Randy eventually is like, oh, her liver and pancreas were in the mailbox. And he says it like that, just really goofy. It's like, what is wrong with these kids? Yeah, just just completely out of control. Um, but yeah, no, I the witty dialogue, I made a comment, or I wrote it down here like multiple times, just the whole time, the puns. The references to movies. Randy is like my favorite character, He's I think, great. in the whole movie. He is great. Just him the whole time talking about and it's perfect that he works at a movie yeah. store, which we eventually get to. That's just that's even better. Um, just an awesome scene. And like I said, you just have to feel bad for Neve King. Um, and eventually she she's on her way home, and I believe she says something to Billy along the lines of deja vu all over again. So you'd think Billy would like take this hint, like, Hey, maybe I need to give her a little bit of space. Like her mom got killed. Now people are getting killed, but again, he doesn't take that hint. And eventually Sydney's coming home. She, she wants to stay with Tatum at night. So Tatum's going to pick her up eventually. And Sydney turns on the TV for a bit here. I want to add this part in because Gail Weathers does this reporting segment and it's a reporting segment that would never air in 2020 because it's just straight up like her mom was raped and murdered just outside of town square. And just the way it's like on TV, it's like, God, Sydney's just getting crushed this whole movie. Well, and they kind of recognize at one point that uh, the channel, I believe it's called top story that Gail works for is the TV equivalent of a tabloid, right? Like they're right. just trying to write sensational headlines they're not honestly looking out for the best interests of the people in the story or trying to be sensitive to their problems at they, all. They'd be the TMZ of the yeah. 90s, essentially. That's kind of what they would be. Here we have a moment, and I wrote this down because I was a big fan of these myself. Sydney does the after-school nap, and let me tell you something about the after-school nap. It's played perfectly in this movie. You go to sleep at 4 o'clock, you wake up, and it feels like it's midnight, but it's only like 6 or 7 o'clock. You know, I just thought of that, and I'm like... You know, Scott used to take a lot of afternoon naps after school. <laughs> yeah, big team nap guy here. I, uh, if you find yourself doing that after work, which I like to do a lot, that's uh, that's definitely a thing. Um, but yeah, just the whole news reporting, kind of like on every station, it's like one of those weird, you know, weird sensations you see it in movies all the time where it's like you know if it's like a serious event or something and like the newest person's like oh it's the same things on every channel yeah. and it's like this poor girl that you know is just getting beaten down by it she just can't hardly take it anymore and she just has to take a nap you know just nap it out that's what i like well and, and i like a lot that it it plays into what makes it feel like a smaller town because again we're in california similar to nightmare on elm street and Nightmare on Elm Street felt like it took place in a larger town, whereas, like, the fact that it's on every single news station for, like, I mean, not to be crass, but a single murder last year and a single murder this year, and to be on every station just made it feel very small town to me. I forgot to say this at the beginning, but we're in the uh, fictional town of Woodsboro. That's kind of where we are here is they, she goes to Woodsboro High, so it's uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. We didn't really have a city, so we kind of do here. Uh, but... Eventually, we she gets her first contact with the killer here, and uh, it's a pretty it's a pretty calm scene at the beginning. Like she doesn't believe it's him. She I think she says it's Randy a couple of times. I'm not really sure uh, if she just doesn't believe the killer at all. Eventually, she like he says he's looking at her again. Like that's his move is to tell them like, hey, I'm looking at you. 
but so her thought to like make sure the killer is not looking at her, she goes outside and sticks a finger up her nose. And she's like, what am I doing right now? And you know what? That's pretty smart because like, what's the killer going to be like uh, picking your nose? Probably well, not. If they can't see you, they can't guess. Right? right. That was, that was the goal. So it's proof at least that he's not sitting out front of the house. Right. And we do realize that he's actually in the house and he starts attacking her. And again, we've got him just being clumsy as fuck constantly. Like this whole fight scene is Sydney kind of beating him up a little bit. And, uh, I, I kind of like that with these movies of like, you know, they're they're beatable, but they're kind of not at the same time. Yeah, they almost have that sort of plot armor because, you know, it's only yeah. at this point, probably 20, 25 minutes into the movie, you know. But like at the same time, it's like, yeah, I mean, I could see this happening. You know, I could I could kick this guy in the nuts yeah. and have him be stunned for a little bit and try to get away. Right. But her whole conversation with him at the beginning is her, I think just trying to feel some sort of control over the situation. Cause she may at the, at the same time thinks it might be Randy, but I think she knows she doesn't really know who it is at the same time. So she, anyway, she can try to find some sort of control over this guy while she can, you know, it all helps her cope with it, but yeah, definitely, definitely interesting. And, and here we, we finally, she's running around the house. She runs up to her room and Billy comes flying through the window uh, and he's just kind of hugging her for a little bit, but then a cell phone falls out of his pocket and she's like, what the fuck? And immediately Billy's just kind of like, I didn't do it. It wasn't me. And Sydney's running down the stairs and I love David Arquette so much in this movie, but to me, this scene just is super perfect for like what his character is. He's not like a super serious cop, but she runs, opens the door and it's David Arquette just holding the scream mask in the door and like scares the shit out of her. And then he scares himself. Yeah. She screams in his face as soon as she sees it. And I, I just love the reaction on both sides that neither of them is prepared for what they see there or what they end up uh, reacting to. What we should mention is while she was, uh, after she got off the phone with the killer and ran away from him, she called nine one one on the um, computer. Yes. Yeah. She typed <laughs> it in. Didn't know they had the technology at the time. <laughs> An eventual eventual movie I think we're going to be reviewing. Uh, the Halloween movie with Buster Rhymes in it. Uh, there's a, a large amount of computer phone technology going on in that one. So I was not a rookie to the you can use your computer <laughs> as a phone. Because in a movie, there is one guy who's literally just the computer guy. It's incredible. We're probably going to review that movie. So there's a little future spoiler. But yeah, it's it's definitely a thing. Then as, as we're going on here, uh, Gail eventually shows up to, you know, what's the story here? What's going on? She has a line that she says to her, her cameraman, whose name is Kenny. And I believe it is, I know you're 50 pounds overweight, but move your fat tub of lard ass now. So she's probably a real joy to work with. Well, I mean, that's the character that, that she wanted to play. You know, she wanted to play yeah. the meanest possible character. And uh, Courtney Cox did a great job here. Like yeah, she she's did. just she rude did. from, from the get go. Yeah. So she, she kind of holds true to that. Uh, and eventually we go back to the jail where Billy's kind of being interrogated by the police. And he's literally saying like, sheriff, I swear I didn't do it. And you can kind of see the sheriff like staring at him like, okay, yeah, he probably didn't do it. But like everything points to Billy being the guy in this scene, I feel like. 
Yeah, and he just this creepy way of him when he's in the sheriff's office talking to him, and he just if you notice how he just like turns around, it's almost like awkward like, but he just stares out the window and like is just staring at Sydney while they're like talking about him. Like, yeah, that makes him look him. innocent for sure. I'm just like, what is he doing? Yeah, I, I mean, Billy just really does play the creepy guy super well. Uh, but moving forward in the scene, we we do learn that it wasn't him, but. They're trying to find like a hit on this costume and a, the costume sold throughout every store forever, apparently. And that's, I, again, to go back to what an easy Halloween costume idea is, is just grabbing a scream mask. So it would be the same scenario in this fake town. Well, look at the hindsight on those guys way back I then. Know. You know, just that um, obviously that costume blew up after, after the movies came out. So just like, putting that in there that it's like that it's a costume you can get anywhere when it really became that afterwards i just thought that was pretty clever well, it already was a popular costume released by a company and uh Wes craven actually had to like convince them to let him use this costume in the movie and that they ended up obviously seeing huge profits when it just continued to sell but they were really hesitant to allow the the costume to be used in the movie at first and obviously they got some Damn good advertising from it. Yeah. I mean, Who doesn't love free <laughs> advertising? Right. Right. Uh, and eventually we have another scene in the police station. Uh, Tatum, who is Dewey's sister. So David Arquette's sister. She's kind of like badgering Dewey a little bit. And Dewey says to her, what did mom tell you? When I wear this badge, you treat me like a man of the law. And I just love that. That's my favorite line from the entire movie. The way he says it just feels like a deputy dumbass. It was wonderful. The delivery was top notch. He plays, he's such a young cop and he's clearly like trying to get the respect of the town, but he, he totally plays a doofus perfectly. Like he's just, he's just so, he's so clumsy and just so not macho tough cop guy. It's just great. The ultimate perfect amount of comic relief, I think. Um, yes, he, <laughs> I said, Randy was probably my favorite character in the movie, but Billy, I think, uh, Dewey definitely has the best lines in the whole, movie. he does. Um, and, and from here, we basically just want to get Sydney out of this, out of the police station. And they say, take the back door. The back door is like maybe five feet from the front door. That's something I noticed right out the gate. Like the reporters were in the, fucking alley already and they're like take her out the back door she'll never be seen she walks out the door and the reporters are like sydney over here they can literally see her from the front door and we have an outstanding bit of dialogue between between courtney cox and neve campbell right here um they're basically she's basically asking or neve campbell sydney is asking gail weathers courtney cox how the book sales are going and and Gail just being the cock that she is the whole movie is like, they're going great and says, I'll send you a copy as she's walking away. And Sydney just turns around and cold cocks her right in the face. And it's just a beautiful scene. It's from that point that I knew I was absolutely on Sydney's side. You oh, know, Gail sure. was being a jerk the entire time. And I loved her getting put in her place for a second. Well, right. I mean, as if it's, all this news reporting and all the kids making jokes around isn't bad enough about her own mom. Now she's got people trying to make money off the whole story saying, yeah, all sorts of things. It's just, it's hard not to feel for her and try to side with, with her at this moment in time for sure. And 
again, like we're going to learn later that Gail's kind of angle behind this is she doesn't believe the person that Sydney picked out for who murdered her mom actually did it. But reality is, I think Gail's just looking for a good story. And like she kind of plays that side of like, well, I don't think Cotton Weary, who's the pegged killer, did it. And, you know, that's just kind of her angle. The whole movie is trying to prove Sydney wrong. So that's why she kind of comes off as an asshole. Did you catch who Cotton yes, was? Yes, Liv Schreiber. Yeah. And, and and he plays huge roles in the second and third movie, believe it or not. And, World's favorite and they don't <laughs> get better. Let's just say that. Uh, <laughs> as, as we're moving on, we've got an, a new scene with in Tatum and Dewey's house here. And uh, I, I wrote something down that I don't know the answer to because this is a, a podcast of three guys, but we have, a, we have a sleepover here, a high school sleepover in the 90s. And they're wearing like the most ridiculous full suit pajamas. I, does that happen? Like, are you wearing like a onesie at that age? Well, Tatum was wasn't. Well, she I feel was wearing like the long T-shirt. That makes sense. had the extra long T-shirt. That's I feel like that's pretty common. But who knows? You know, I in the nineties, I was you know at this time I was probably three years old. I wasn't interested in what girls were doing at their slumber I parties know, yet. But, I mean, it's, it tripped my trigger. I don't know. I just right. Um, but Scott obviously, on fashion watch here. <laughs> well, the other thing I wanted to point out is like she had stuffed animals all over the room, but that one does check out. That doesn't always go away with age. So, you know, teach their own. But uh, basically here we have another scene of somehow the killer calls their house, um, which it would probably be pretty tough to pull off. But apparently the, the killers have ends to like some sort of phone company to figure out all this shit. Um, and basically the killer saying, Looks like you fingered the wrong guy again. So the killer's kind of pushing the idea of she not only like put her own boyfriend in jail, but she's he's also saying like, hey, you kind of fucked up with who killed your mom, too. Well, the fact that he's calling right then makes Billy seem very innocent, right? Because right. we know that he's been being kept in jail. Um, next piece of the scene, Dewey, uh, <laughs> comes racing out of his own bedroom, gun out in his underwear in and the underwear uh, in his boxers and white, white t-shirt. And it's just so comical how he's basically tripping around the house with this gun out for a phone call. Come on, bud. But uh, what yes. I would like to point out is this made me feel very much so like Dewey was guilty here. Oh. He's clumsy. Uh, he was in the other room and came out as soon as the killer got off the phone. It felt way too convenient to me. And I had these th harebrained theories like this the entire time. And I was convinced at this point that Billy was innocent and it had to be Dewey. And that's the key to like scream that makes it so good is every single person in the movie is a suspect and you can literally never rule any of them out. Like there's, Everybody seems to have a potential angle of like what they'd be mad about. Maybe not like a Tatum or like, I mean, Randy could because he's like just on edge, but he's kind of a psycho. But you don't really know who the killer is the entire time. I mean, the first time you see it, obviously, this is like the 27th time that I've seen it. So I'm kind of like putting the pieces together of what they're doing together. But I mean, you re you're really guessing till the end. As Sydney's heading back to school from pretty much, you know, here, hearing from the killer a couple times, putting her own boyfriend in jail, you know, really rough stuff. Uh, she's walking into school and one of the reporters asks her a question. And the question is, how does it feel to almost be brutally murdered? 
And uh, I just love that. You know, it's just honest to the point. Like, how does it feel to almost be murdered? Pretty great. Uh, but eventually she's she's headed into school here and she's she stops in the bathroom and there's these two girls who are just ripping Sydney apart here. Yeah, really taking shot, pot shots at her mom. This is where we really get confirmation, I believe, for the first time that her mom was pretty brutally raped and murdered uh, almost exactly a year ago. And these girls are making some wild accusations about uh, the type of character of her mom, how it's affected Sydney, and it's completely insensitive. Yeah, and an interesting quote from one of the girls when she talks about how she thinks Sydney could be the killer. Mm -hmm. Like she finally snapped after a year. And then I just noticed that when the girl asked her, she's like, Oh, where did you come up with that? And then the girl says, Oh, it's original. This original. Um, I think that honestly is like the main theme of the movie is like, everyone wants their own original yeah. thing. Like the whole movie itself is original in a way of like tying in, all this pop culture and all these horror movies into in, intertwining it into this whole mysterious serial killer itself. So I think like that there's another time later on, I might touch on it once we get there, but yeah, this just whole, like everyone comes up with their own original story. I, to me, it seems like it was almost the main theme of the whole movie. Yeah. And I think that scene's just pretty rough for Sydney. Cause like they're, they're basically like, she's kind of whoring around like her mom, you know, like they're really taking some deep shots at her for, Pretty much no reason, I feel like. Uh, just it's really to, trashy the yeah, entire time. Right. And uh, eventually we learn that the killer's like in the last stall. Uh, th this doesn't really come to anything. And I kind of just leave myself asking this scene, like, how did they get out of there? You know, did they quickly slip the costume on, quickly sit in the bathroom for a while, and then just kind of... Well, right. Is he just like, have they just been waiting it's in there weird. knowing that he's going to be coming to the bathroom? Yeah, but this, this is a common theme throughout the movie. Like, the killer will just be outside places, like, not in the scene, but in the scene at the same time. Like, there's a scene later on that they're in the grocery store and he's in the frozen food section. And then there's one where he's just walking through the woods like Bigfoot. Like, it's just ridiculous, but it's kind of clever that, like, the killer's... He's kind of constantly around. He's always watching, yeah. So this scene really, I mean, it doesn't come to much. And she kind of runs out of the bathroom. And uh, I before before this, I believe she ran into Billy. And this kind of sets what you were talking about, Anthony. Like, Billy says to her... It, hey, your mom got murdered, but that was a year ago. Like, my parents split up, and I feel fine. And I'm just like, okay, this is not in any way close to what, You know, it's pretty crazy that he says that. Yeah, I mean, I wrote he's completely obsessive, and it's just like he just has this need for this affection from her, like, at whatever cost, like, totally disregard anything you've ever been through just as long as I get what I exactly. want. I'm just like... What is this guy's deal? I mean, you know, it's 17 and that's kind of the role that most guys play is like, that's all they want. We talked about that in Nightmare on Elm Street, yeah. but yeah. this is to the extreme when you're bringing up your divorced parents as a murderer. But, you know, um, so here we get a little bit of a setup between that uh, Dewey and Gail are kind of flirting with each other. They kind of crack a few jabs back and forth of like, uh, a couple, the like my demographic is twelve to twenty five year old boys or something like that. Favorite quote, favorite quote of the movie. <laughs> yeah, go for it because I don't have it exactly. Well, I just wrote it down because she says something like, 
I never, or I don't watch the show so much. And she's like, well, I'm popular amongst age groups, 11 to 24. And then he says something back to her that she like notices that obviously he does watch the, the show. And she's like, oh, so you do watch the show. And he's like, I'm 25 years old. I was 24 for a whole year. That's a good line. I feel like it was. I loved it. And she kind of, I think for the first time she's kind of like, yeah, Hey, all right. This guy's got something. It was in this scene too. I believe she's like, Oh, do they, do you need these kind of muscles for the force? Like she's really trying to hit on him to like get the story that she's looking for, but he's kind of like totally playing into it. And it, it's, it's just good give and take between them. Obviously like they, start a little relationship in this movie. But um, so going from there, something smart happens here. They send the kids home and I'm like, well, thank God. But it's like, they took them two days to do that. Like they decided, Hey, maybe they shouldn't be at school. Like there's a killer on the loose. Uh, mm -hmm. But this springs Matthew Lillard to be like, let's have a giant party. And I think back to like that age, I would do the same thing as an 18 year old. I'd be like, yeah, uh, school's out now. Let's just all have a giant party. I mean, it's the immediate reaction of any film TV kid, right? Is we're invincible. We're teenagers. There's clearly no way he can get all of us when we're in a group. So therefore, let's have a party. It's genius. Just right. genius. And and uh, ev eventually this leads to like the only people left in school is the principal and two kids who are pretending to be like uh, they were pretending to be the screen the killer and with masks and whatnot. And he expels them both. And I'm kind of like, hey, this is a little extreme, but also it makes sense because these kids were pretending to be killers. So it's pretty fucked up. Um, but this is where we get just, I think Henry Winkler is just phenomenal in this entire scene. Um, you know, he, he, I believe at one point is trying the mask on and like is yep. going like boo in the, in the mirror. And it's just great. Um, and we also get, a little cameo here of Wes Craven. Uh, he, he goes out into the hall and he's like talking to a janitor and he says, Hey Fred. And it's, it's Wes Craven dressed up in a, like the Freddy Krueger sweater, the top hat, all of it. It's just great. I never would have remembered or noticed that had I not rewatched this movie yeah. and just not, I caught it, you know, yeah. I was just like, Holy shit. <laughs> there he is. It's a fun little cameo. <laughs> I like it a lot. Yeah. Um, but obviously this kind of leads to, you know, Henry Winkler's death. Um, I, I really didn't write down much how he got killed, but I wrote down that he scares himself with his reflection many times in this scene. So he's like opening up a, a closet and he scares himself. And then he's opening up another closet and he scares himself. And then it turns out the killer was in there the whole time. Henry Winkler gets killed. Pretty much the end of Henry Winkler there. Again, here, great way of uh, Wes Craven putting anyone in the shoes of the killer. Uh, when when the Fonz was yelling at these two kids who had dressed up as the as the killer, he grabs this unnecessarily large pair of scissors and cuts up their masks. And I'm like, he is way too good with those scissors to be completely innocent. And clearly I was proven wrong again because, again, I was convinced it was him. Uh, because about a minute later is when he gets killed himself. Right. And again, that's just kind of nice. It keeps you guessing the whole movie and it kind of kills off characters you think would be, you know, potentially the killer in it. Um, I have only one transition written down here and that is uh, Alice Cooper schools out for summer because I think that's so funny that like a killer is the reason they're not having school. And you just know throughout the town schools out is playing on all the radios. It's just phenomenal. I love that. 
we eventually kind of get like a small realization from Sydney here that she's like, Hey, I might've put the wrong guy in jail. And it's like, this is what made you think that, you know, like you've been getting clues pretty much the whole movie, but she kind of gets a small realization of that. And we move to a scene. That's one of my favorites. It's in the video store. And uh, you've got some really good dialogue here between Randy, Stu and Billy. It's just, I love it. Randy's just, he, he constantly wants to point the finger at himself, which doesn't make any sense. Um, he talks about how much he loves horror movies. He talks about all the ways that uh, people are killed off in those horror movies. And it, to me, he was the only one I specifically thought couldn't have done it because it would have been way too obvious. And you just kind of get him looking over at Billy here and he's like, he's standing in the horror movie section. Like that guy's a killer. And it's, it's, it's pretty great. I mean, eventually Billy does kind of confront Randy here and he's like, how do you know you're not the killer? You know, it's just, it's some good dialogue between them to kind of keep you guessing of like who the killer might be. Yeah, for sure. And you can definitely tell there's something, um, you know, that he's Randy's definitely kind of the outlier. Cause those two play off each other very well. Um, Stu and Billy, they're, you know, they're picking on him, keeping him in the middle of them both, you know, in the middle of the frame, each scene they're on each side of him, and he feels kind of surrounded. And so, you could choose, you could really choose either one at this point because he's he like you guys said he he's like the expert and you know he seems a little off you know yeah. he kind of is obsessed with Sid at the same time so the whole thing you know the great thing about this movie is it does keep you guessing the whole time and and eventually we were kind of leading the whole movie to this last scene which is it's the party scene and this is I believe this is Stu's house. Um, it's a pretty much a giant mansion is where we're heading to here. All the characters are going there. Fun fact about this scene, it took 21 days to film this entire scene and the actors and actresses were just like exhausted after it. And I mean, a lot does happen here, so it, it kind of makes sense. But 21 days to film a scene is that that's quite a long time for one location, I feel like. Um, but basically here, everyone's meeting up. Uh, Gail and Kenny are driving here to try to get the story of the kids partying. And again, you've got, you've got Dewey and Gail kind of like flirting with each other. And for some reason, Dewey brings her into the party. Like I didn't get that at all. Dude, Dewey's totally. on a date, <laughs> but like, he, yeah, he's just totally going against his duty. And like, it's so like, why would he do that? I don't know. Like he just takes her back in. I, I have no I'm idea. Just I don't know what I'm more amazed is that he's just that okay or open with him taking her to an underage party or that the kids just don't give a shit that a cop's just walking through their party right now. I mean, probably because they know who he is and that he ain't going to, he's not going to do anything, but well, it's a little, at the same time, it's a little yeah. plot hole too, because he drops them off at the party and then he's walking down the road and runs into Gale, but he's walking the other way. And then he's like, actually, I was going to go into that party. And it's like, it kind of adds a little bit of like, what the fuck is Dewey doing? So he's a little of, suspicion there. Right. So I think they do a pretty good job of that. But then they have him come to the party. And I'm kind of just like, okay, this is stupid. Like, it didn't really make sense to me. Um, but here we, so they're, they're all partying. And basically, Stu is asking... Stu and Tatum are dating. I don't know if we ever established this, but Dewey's sister's name is Tatum and she's dating Stu. And Stu is like, hey, can you go grab me another beer? Which 
leads to probably one of my favorite scenes of the movie. It's one of the most ridiculous, uh, but she goes out to get a beer. And first of all, she sees a cat and you know, nothing's going to good's going to come when you see a cat first, first things off. Then uh, the door kind of shuts from the inside and she's kind of like stuck in the garage and she eventually runs into the killer here. She doesn't believe it's the killer at first, but she, they have some fun dialogue here where um, the first thing she asks is, are we going to play psycho killer? And you've just got the killer like nodding the whole time. <laughs> and I really, I really like this dialogue here. This was maybe my favorite kill, I think, yeah. of the entire movie as well. Uh, the killer, again, just fumbling at every step of the way here with Tatum. She basically gets away from him and is crawling out of the little kitty door. At yeah, which point, yes. yeah, yep. right. She's a little bit stuck, like a human person is not meant to fit out of a door of that size. And the killer simply raises the garage door. And I, I had written down here, I don't know... Um... You know, I don't know if this was normal, but like as a kid, every time I'd leave the house, sometimes I'd leave out of the garage, but you'd have to shut the garage from the inside and then kind of jump underneath the garage. I kind of got a little like scared here, like, man, what if I would have got crushed by my garage? But she kind of is getting crushed upwards. So it's a little bit of a different scenario. She's getting raised up and her head just kind of like yanks almost off. So it's quite the kill. Yes, brutal, brutal scene. But the first one where he didn't stab them right yeah you know it's almost like why he was willing to do it that way when his whole thing was about like you know seeing insides and all that stuff i just thought that was interesting but yeah definitely definitely one of the more out there kills of the whole movie for well, sure and i and i think this was a little bit of comic relief a little bit like this i mean she was kind of a serious character but it was definitely like a let's kill her in the garage door this would be a pretty funny scene so you, you've kind of got that going there. Um, it definitely but, felt like a kill of convenience, whereas like yes. the first two, um, Drew Barrymore's Casey and her football boyfriend, Steve, those were clearly meticulously planned out, right? Like Steve was tied up the entire time. He mm -hmm. knew he was going to kill him, regardless right. of whether or not she got the questions right. So we're moving on from Tatum's death. And one thing I did want to point out is like, this is a huge party. There's a lot of people there. Did nobody ever go to the garage to get another beer? Because like, yeah, we're, like we're, there's clearly people there for another like good hour or two, you know, of, of real time, and no yeah. one ever, or even the people leaving didn't happen to just notice that somebody's hanging from the garage door, right? Um, but then we're we're kind of going back to a little scene here of uh, Gail and Kenny, and she had uh, put a camera inside the house, so she's kind of like spying just to catch the next murder because she knows something's going down and. Um, one thing to note about that is their feed back into their car is a 30 second delay, which I think leads to a really nice sequences in the movie. Like it's kind of cool that, Hey, this already happened like 30 seconds ago. So that comes back to play eventually. But uh, here we also have Billy arriving to the party and he's, he's always like jumping out behind corners. He's always doing something weird. Uh, but to continue that, like, He's trying to again get with Sydney, which is literally his goal of the whole freaking movie. And he he makes a reference here to uh, Silence of the Lambs and Jodie Foster, I believe. And I didn't fully catch what the reference was, but he's kind of like, yeah, you you're kind of like playing the character of Jodie Foster in Silence of the Lambs. But he's just always talking about horror movies. Well, 
that I thought was super interesting because I was thinking the same thing for some reason before he even said it because there was one line or a, or a sentence she said when she was talking to him and I cannot remember what it was. I should have wrote it down because I was just watching it and thinking it. Like she said it and she had like a southern drawl like Jodie Foster does in Silence of the Lambs. I'm like, gosh, she sounded like a lot like Jodie Foster right there. And then he said it. I'm like, <laughs> that is so weird. You know, but it's just another cool way that they just, you know, like we said the whole time, just really pounding in your head these these horror movie tropes that just seem to carry the weight of the whole movie. It's been really cool. And and eventually here we we do have Sydney who's just like, Hey, maybe we should make our own porno. Going back to <laughs> their rating thing, so it kind of makes sense. She's like, you know what? We're gonna just jump right to the end. So they do have sex and Billy finally gets what he wants the whole time. We head back downstairs to my favorite part of the movie. The whole rest of the party is watching Halloween and you have Randy calling out the rules of horror. And I just absolutely love this scene. Best scene, because, Best scene of the movie. Because first thing he says is, you can never have sex. And all the guys at the party are like booing him like, no, what? Like, <laughs> unreal. And then he says, you can never drink or do drugs. And they all clink their beers. And it's just incredible. And the third rule that he says is never under any circumstances say, I'll be right back. So Stu's like, he gets up and he's like, I'll get another beer. And then he goes, I'll be right back. And everybody's like, whoa. Like, I just really like this scene. I like it because it really pushes how much this is supposed to be a horror at the same time as being a satire about horrors. Right. right? Like I found myself laughing. I found myself scared during this movie mm -hmm. and this really cemented me having a really good opinion of this movie. It really yep. I, I wrote down the words self-awareness, yes. you know, the whole movie is, is really just self-aware and that's a good thing. You know, it doesn't take itself too seriously, but at the same time is still, just keeps you on the edge of your seat still edgy but yet funny you know it really this scene kind of embodies the whole movie in one nutshell pretty much i think it took them a while to get to that like satire portion of it i mean they're pushing it the whole movie but like this is where the rest of the series took off from it kind of got pushed a little too hard in the next two movies i think like because they go into like film class and like go into the theory of movies and i don't like that as much but like him pointing out these three simple rules in it is just incredible because you can go back and look at any Friday the 13th, Halloween, you know, it, it, it all checks out usually. So, mm -hmm. um, so as we're moving on from that, we get a little more into uh, Dewey and Gail's relationship here and they're kind of walking down the road and Dewey says to Gail, he's like, do you know what constellation that is? And she's like, no. And he goes, Oh, I don't either. And that's just kind of the smoothness we're working with here with Dewey. So, you know, I, I just love the character that David Arquette plays here and their their relationship kind of gets a little more close here because they're they almost get ran off the road uh from some by some of the drunk kids from the party. Right. And and uh so the reason why she gets ran over by these kids, by the way, this is a plot hole I cannot miss. Randy picks up the phone that they they get a phone call and the Halloween music's kind of playing in the background, like the normal like slow part of it. And he's learning that the principal is hung up at, by the goalposts at the school. He's dead. And all these kids are like, we got to go check it out. Like 
in the nineties, you know, like you've got all these giant guys who are like, you know, probably getting detention all the time. And they're like, principal Winkler is the worst. And so they all take off to go like, see his hanging body at a goalpost. <laughs> Completely <laughs> just, messed up. Just well, a, and why is this house getting called to be notified? It's a great question like, as well. Is right. it not something that they would have waited to investigate just a little bit before notifying specifically this house or other parents' houses? It just didn't make sense. Yeah. And so these kids are driving back. They run Dewey and Gail off the road and they have their first kiss here. And Gail says, as she sees a car, she says, is this what you were looking for? And she's pointing at the car. Dewey's still looking at her and goes, my whole life. <laughs> she's like, I'm talking about the car. Which we, You dog, you. It's great. <laughs> Another great line by Dewey. But we realize this is Sydney's dad's car. And this kind of sets up the beginning of the end here. Because we, we head back into, the, into Stu's house. And Billy and Billy and Sydney are kind of getting dressed again. And Sydney's kind of got like this these thoughts in her head, like, who'd you call while you were at the sheriff's station? And and from here, Billy's just kind of like, well, I called my dad. And Sydney kind of calls BS. Yeah, she says, uh, we I watched the deputy or the sheriff call your dad. Uh, why would he call him again after you had just called him or attempted to? Right. And, and so here again, we're getting pushed that Billy's still the guy, but out comes the killer and stabs him. And the, like the first time I saw this, I was convinced that it wasn't Billy, you know, like, well, that how was could it, it be? You had seen him in the same room. Uh, I was completely convinced he was innocent at this point, unfortunately right. dead, but innocent. And, yep. and so we're moving on from that scene into Randy sitting on the couch, still finishing Jamie Lee Curtis in, Halloween and you have a, a really great scene here of basically everything that's happening in Halloween is happening to Randy in the movie. Michael Myers is approaching Jamie in the movie. Can't see her. So he's like, turn around. Reality is the killer is right behind him. And he's like about to get stabbed. So you get that little bit of a scene here. Um, but the whole time Kenny's watching this in the truck where Sydney has come run out because she's scared for like the killers coming after her and they get stuck in the truck for a while. Yeah. Really great scene. Not only with that delay, adding that suspense, but just amazing camera work on um, Randy on the couch, like the whole time. Cause you can tell he's just intoxicated. So the camera it's is just like back and forth yeah. and spinning back and forth. And you can kind of just feel drowsy with him. And at the same time, you're yelling with the people in the van, he's right behind you. He's right behind you. <laughs> Just an amazing scene. Yep. And which leads to the point you had brought up earlier, Scott, which is uh the, there's a 30 second delay on on the tape recording. So Sydney is coming out and they're seeing a Randy about to get stabbed and the killer like slowly fades away. And Kenny's like, oh shit, 30 second delay. Turns around, stabbed instantly. <laughs> which I mean you kind of saw that one coming. And um so so basically Kenny's dead here and um, Dewey is coming back to the house because they they know something's going on here. And Dewey is running through the house like with the Halloween music going on, which I kind of like that scene a little bit because it still has got like the goofy, you know, music with Dewey kind of like popping around the corners and shit. So I like that scene a lot. We eventually I think here Dewey gets does Dewey get stabbed here? Yeah, that, yeah. He, he stumbles out onto the front porch. 
uh, already apparently stabbed, and we believe that he dies. Right, and so Gail's kind of running out of here. She runs back into her truck, and um, she she see she sees blood like coming down her windshield, and like she's 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 trying to get away, and she wipes the wipers like, oh my god, there's blood. And as she's driving, yeah, there's Kenny's dead body like hanging over the top, and she says the line of like. I'm sorry, Kenny, but get the fuck off my what? What is the vehicle? Um, a she's, van. She says a specific name. I forget what it was, but is it? It was a good scene. Um, and actually, Sydney's on the road, and like Gail almost plows into her, but ends up just flying into a tree stump. So <laughs> I kind of assumed Gail almost died there, but as as the movie will go on, she didn't. But here, Sydney runs back to the house. Um, I think. This is the scene where she tries to, like, she goes into the ca- a car, and the killer is kind of, like, playing with her a little bit with unlocking the doors. And you get, like, a little bit of a classic scene here of the killer kind of, like, noticing she's locked in the car, so he kind of, like, swims underneath the car. And, like, is popping certain ones unlocked, popping certain ones unlocked, like... It's, just, it's a cool little scene that Scream kind of started of the killer going underneath the car. The real um, question I have is, can you really pop locks on those old cars just simply by climbing underneath them? That so, is not secure at all. So the reality is, I believe that they had uh, the killer had the keys. So he uh, was he was just fucking with her the whole time, like unlocking them. And eventually she gets on the phone with 911, but the killer had gone through the trunk. So killer's chasing her. She gets to the house and the killer's gone. She doesn't know where he went. And here you have Randy and Stu both running to the door, both like, it was him, he did it. And they're, and Randy's like, no, it was him, he did it. And they're both complaining. And Sydney's just like, you know what? Fuck both of you and locks them both out. Yeah, yeah. that's the smartest decision she's made the entire movie. And- right. She's got the gun at this point. She holds all the power. Where, where was Randy? So the guy obviously just left him on the couch and then he went running somewhere unless i missed something i no i don't know where he went they didn't it's kind of a plot hole where he was but um yeah it's he he's kind of just around just passed out on the couch the whole time the killer (laughs) either left him or forgot about him right and and here we've got billy like sid he's on top of the stairs he falls down the stairs and so they meet back up and uh they let uh randy back in the door who's again saying it's Stu who's the killer and this is where it the movie really takes a turn. Um, Billy is just like, is somebody says the lines of like, what's going on out there, you know? And uh, Billy says, we all go a little mad sometimes. And then he blasts Randy with the gun. And here we, we, after all this, we see that it was Billy the whole time. It's kind of your suspicion, just the way, it, you know, maybe it was hard for me for seeing the movie. For the, I, I'm interested to hear what you have to say, Jim, because like you said, you were kind of, twisted you know the whole time but maybe it was just me having seen the movie a few times now and kind of seeing how he acted how you could kind of just see it coming but obviously someone who has seen it for the first time i'm interested to see what you felt at this moment i was honestly completely blown away right like the the comment is you know you've never seen me and batman in a room together implying that i am batman right but yep 10 minutes ago, we had just seen Billy supposedly stabbed by the killer. I was completely convinced it wasn't him. And up until this point, when he first shoots Dewey, 
we don't know that Stu's involved. And that to me was the real genius because the entire time I had assumed it was one person. I never made a connection that it was two people. And once Stu reveals himself, I, it, it's genius to have them both posing as the same serial killer. And I was completely blown away by the reveal. I loved and- it. And this is where I think is probably the best acting of the movie. Um, You've got just basically Billy and Stu kind of going over their whole plan of why they're tormenting Sydney the way that they were. And they start off, Billy starts off by literally saying like it's, there was no motive. And I have a take on that. If he would have just ended it with that better movie. You know, like I agree. I, I like that. It was, you know, maybe the mom ruined the, relationship between billy's dad and his mom but like i don't think we actually know if either of those are true or not i think both could be but it kind of makes you think like hey yeah uh you know sydney's mom kind of fucked up the wedding their marriage so they don't really he really doesn't like sydney much uh or her mom so that's why he killed her in the first place the mom in the first place too i i just love that he starts off with you know there's no motive and there's a there's a there's some sort of relation to Sharon Stone here. And Matthew Lillard goes, but let's be real. Your mom was no Sharon Stone. And just the way he's saying that is just so crazy. Like he's just lost his freaking mind. I really liked the fact that they revealed here that uh, they were responsible for the death of her mom. Right. Yeah. And that they had specifically framed this, um, this cotton guy. I forget his yes. full name. Cotton um, yep. Just that they were so planned and so sadistic about this entire thing that they've done mm-hmm. however i think i disagree with you and that this is some of the worst acting oh. in the movie it, it became too over the top it I did felt that billy and Stu were just screaming at each other and it became a little nonsensical for me which is why i agree with you that if uh, if billy had just said and there was no motive and we just wind the movie down from there mm-hmm. it would have been a better movie and And basically here you've got, again, Stu and Billy revealing their plan. And uh, Matthew Lillard, Stu says, uh, we've got another surprise for you. And he says, it's a screamer, baby. And as he's saying it, he says, I'll be right back. And again, I think that's a good callback. Like Stu nails that line both times. They bring out Sydney's dad, who's been captured the whole time. Like he's been stuck in that closet. I mean, what's he been doing? We hadn't really touched on much of her dad because he was supposed to be gone on that business trip. But, you know, up until this point, it was starting to look like he was the killer is what the cops were kind of led to believe once they found his car and they kind of switched after that. But, yeah, definitely, definitely a huge twist to have him have been just tied up. And then one thing I just loved, she kind of she's yelling at them, you know, saying you'll never get away with this. And then that one quote that Stu says, I just love, he says, you'd be amazed, watch a few movies, take a few notes. You'll be amazed at what you can get away with. And I just happened to ask myself, why are we turning into these guys? When you go in depth to this as, as much as you do, I mean, I'm sure we're put on some sort of government list at least, you know? Yeah. Hopefully no one we know dies under suspicious circumstances. Right. I did say my favorite scene was the rule scene, and it was, but this would have to be my second favorite scene is when they start stabbing each other. Going into my second favorite part of the movie is when Stu and Billy both start stabbing each other. And um, while this is happening, basically Matthew Lillard gets the first stab 
and and you hear Billy kind of directing him like how to stab him without making it hurt so much. And just that visual and even the thought of it freaks me out. It's just I don't it's it's just so weird. Well, it's proving the fact that they're just completely sadistic, right? They're willing to do this to obviously clear their names so that they can hopefully continue to kill people. Right. And and they do reveal that their whole goal is to kind of frame it on frame it on their dad, her dad. So they're kind of like slipping the uh, clone phone into his pocket and really setting it up to make it look like it's him. So, um, and here you have, uh, Sydney says to Billy, you sick fucks have seen one too many scary movies. And Billy says back, now Sid, don't you blame the movies. Movies don't make psychos. Movies make psychos more creative. And I loved that line. And he's screaming it as he's stabbing Stu. It's just quite it's quite the line between between uh billy and Stu and sydney here um but basically here uh gail comes back in and turns out she has a gun that they couldn't find that they had hidden she basically like is about to shoot them but she doesn't take the safety off yeah i was completely confused she was sitting there like almost like shaking the gun at him and i was like what are you doing pull the trigger already and we can be done with this. Why are you waiting for them to attack you? Also here, um, as she kind of is getting attacked, uh, Billy says like, this is Gail Weathers signing off as he's about to blast her. And man, that would have been a good kill. Uh, I'm kind of ashamed that we didn't get to see that one, but you know. Yeah. The fact that they don't is kind of interesting. Like I get it that <laughs> somehow in this span of like 30 seconds, um, Sydney was able to get her and her dad, who's completely duct taped up off the floor and hidden again. Like yeah, it, it, the dad's it, had a rough movie. It's a pretty amazing feat, but um, but yeah, it's like I think it kind of shows you know they are clumsy teenagers. Like they weren't able to seal the deal, you know, for lack of a better term, and somehow bumbled it away. You know, I, and here again, you have another one of my favorite parts. Um, they there's a phone call and. <laughs> Stu goes, should I let the machine get it? <laughs> and like Billy looks at him he, like he's a dumbass. He's completely well, he's sitting there bleeding the out. It was wonderful. Oh, yeah. I mean, Matthew Lillard's practically dying at this point. And, and actually, he says, Billy, don't stab me so much. I'm dying, man. Like, it's pretty, it's some really good dialogue. But he picks up the phone and it's Sydney with the voice changer. And uh, she she's basically talking and like, Billy is going to look for her and she's still talking to Stu on the phone. And she says to Stu, she's like, Oh, Billy clearly has a motive. Stu, what's yours? And Stu just goes peer pressure. <laughs> so that you just get some really funny last lines of Stu here. Like he's like, I'm going to, am I going to go to jail? And she's like, yeah. And he goes, my mom and dad are going to be so mad at me as he's just got blood coming <laughs> everywhere. And you finally get, Sydney revealed in the scream costume, which I wrote down in my notes. I did not like this very much. Why does she have the costume on? Like, I get it. She's got to torment them the same way that they tormented her. But like, where'd she find the costume in time? I don't know. I didn't. How did she know where they had put it? Was the real question. Right. I mean, there's no reason why she would have stumbled upon it. Or like, I, I believe she ends up bursting out of a closet. Right. Right. Standing there in the dark. How are you? 
aware enough to get the costume on to be able to attack them and not have your face end up like backwards in the mask where you can't see or something like that. Right. Right. Like not only now is she trying to like save her own life, but she realizes her father is in danger too. So like why has it become a priority to just throw on this mask and, and gown to try to terrorize these guys, you know, when they could just probably get out of there a lot easier than. Yeah. Still, she's she's on the attack now, so you got that going, and she's kind of like the badass. So for Stu, it kind of ends with them fighting, and he kind of gets stuck underneath the TV, and she slams the TV on top of his head. And I thought this was a pretty damn good kill. With all those huge boob tube TVs that they had in the 90s, Mm -hmm. those things are heavy. I would have loved, or I, I did love that this was one of the final kills. Right, and so we get rid of Stu, and we find Randy again. What does Randy say to Sydney besides, I never thought I'd be so happy to be a virgin? Um, <laughs> classic line from Randy here with all the rules that he made. You can't have sex. So, But here we have basically Billy coming back again to fight Sydney. And as they're fighting, there's a really gross scene where she sticks her finger directly into his knife wound. And that one really gets you, you know, it just makes you clench up a little bit. Um, and eventually, I believe... Is it Gail who shoots him? Right. The first time, yeah. Yep, so Gail shoots him, and he's down for a while, and Randy does the classic, hey, this is kind of the time where the killer always comes back from the dead for one last jump scare. And it's like a pause for a while, and then yeah, he does. waiting for him to jump. <laughs> and Sydney blasts him right in the skull. So <laughs> um, that's, kind of, that's kind of your ending right there. Uh, I think... One thing I kind of like with that ending is it kind of gives Gail some redemption with Sydney. You know, they they kind of can bury the hatchet a little bit, knowing that Gail kind of saved her life and Sydney kind of saved her life. And so they've kind of got some connected trauma here with like staving off this killer together. And closure for the both of them. Yeah. Like Gail kind of had a hunch the whole time that the wrong guy was locked up. And now by the end of it, Sydney was already starting to second guess herself. Like, did she put the wrong guy right. away? So Finally, for both of them, yep. you know, this was true closure for sure. Right. That, uh, just going back to my score, uh, again, I gave it a 9 out of 10 because, you know, I just love this movie. Uh, I love the ending to it. I love pretty much everything about it. So um, sticking with the 9 out of 10, uh, sticking with the fact that it kind of shaped the way, it paves the way for some horror movies of the future. Yeah, what did you give it, Anthony? I gave it an 8 uh a lot of things Scott echoed. Um, I enjoyed it on the rewatch a lot more than I thought I would, to be honest. I kind of, I knew it was a little cheesy and corny, but you know, it was done in such a good way. And I didn't realize all of like the, you know, connections to the real life horror movies and all that other stuff. It just worked really well through its own story that I was trying to tell. So original, like I said earlier, in its own way. So yeah, very good. I gave it an 8. Yeah, and I gave it an 8 out of 10 as well. Again, coming to this really late in the game, almost uh, 25 years after it came out, and I was incredibly impressed by how well it held up. You know, for a 90s movie, I got the appropriate amount of nostalgia for the time period, even not being acquainted with the movie, and got some really good scares and constantly kept me guessing about who was guilty. I, I at one point or another thought every single character could have done it. So that to me was really impressive and made it a successful movie. And that is a wrap on 1996 Wes Craven's Scream. Now, boys, what are we watching next week? Uh You better let us know, Scotty boy. 
I think there's some ooze involved. So we are going to be going to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle world of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle Secret of the Ooze. Now, we are not talking about these new remakes they did with whoever it was. I don't know. John Cena something was in them. We're talking about the movies all the way back from, I believe, the 90s. Uh, but... You're gonna get to you're gonna get to know Raphael. You're gonna get to know Donatello. You're gonna get to know April. You're gonna get to know the Rat, and uh, you're gonna get to know Shredder. But hey, you respect Master Splinter more than that. No, man. Uh, it's let me tell you. When you rewatch these movies, you're gonna you're gonna see some things you definitely didn't see the first time you saw them. Um, I from the rewatch that I did about three years ago, I was kind of like, well, there are some problematic moments in this movie. And uh, it's just going to be a fun time recording. Uh, with that, you can email us questions or comments at seenthatpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's S-C-E-N-E, thatpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for once again listening to the We've Seen That Podcast. I'm Scott. I'm Anthony. And I'm Jim. And roll credits. <laughs>